Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Well, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this year, Lord's Day. Thank you that you have called us uh, to worship you and that you have given us your Holy Spirit that allows us to know you and who teaches us. Father, we pray that you would guide this uh, Sunday school class, that the things that we set our minds to would honor and glorify you, and that you would help us to know more about you, to grow in our knowledge of your, uh, your glorious perfection. And may we uh, honor you in every one of our thoughts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're beginning a new Sunday school class this morning on the book of Galatians. I just finished reading um, Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians recently, and I've read um, a, a few sermons from a book of sermons that John Calvin uh, published. He has a commentary on Galatians as well, and uh, there's there are published sermons from from uh, John Calvin, and so using those sort of as my resources. One of the things that I want to do this morning is to read through the entire book. And, and uh, so if you have a New American Standard Bible, I would invite you to follow along. If you don't have one of those, they're provided for you in the pews. If you're following along in a different version, just listen. Don't follow along. You'll be distracted uh, by words, and you won't be able to focus on the flow of the content. So um, we'll do that at some point. We'll read through the whole book. But I want to give some, some background so that we have some context. The, the book of Galatians is old. It's old even among the, uh, the letters that we have of the Apostle Paul. This would be essentially the oldest letter that we have from Paul. And so early, it was written early uh, by his pen. And so you see in this, and so what date would that be? Well, we, can, we can't pin it perfectly, but it's basically between 48 and 58 AD that this book, this letter was written to a group of churches in a region called uh, Galatia. And so... Um, so it's, it's a picture into some of the controversies that were plaguing the early church, some of the growing pains and difficulties that the apostles faced and uh, some of the battles that the apostle Paul was immediately thrust into even after these churches had been planted by him and he was seeing uh, the... Uh, things go south with those church plants that he had planted just years earlier. And so he writes with great concern uh, in Galatians. 
And so it's, it's uh, the book of Galatians. I mean, what do you remember from the book of Galatians off the top of your head? And Zandy, you don't get the answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's shorter than Romans. It's shorter than First and Second Corinthians. But it's longer than the pastoral epistles. Sort of falls in the middle. Yeah, six. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I'd say right in the middle. It's six chapters. It's a, it's a long argument. But the thing about it is it, it, it might be shorter as far as words, but he has a long argument in Galatians, basically the first five chapters, and then six pivots a bit. Any, any specific verses that you remember? Yeah. What's that? Okay. Right? Yeah. Oh, foolish Galatians, having, what's that? False gospel, fruit of the Spirit, yeah. Um, if we or an angel preach a different gospel, you know, um, you who are spiritual, restore those who are straying. Um, okay. Right, right. Okay, good. Uh, what about mention of Peter? Right? The Apostle Paul rebuked Peter to his face because he stood condemned. He used to, he used to eat with certain individuals and then no longer would do that. Right? So, uh, lot, a lot of you know, common verses that we have percolating in our brains are in this book. And of course, the, the main thrust of the book is the apostle. Well, there are a few themes, but one of the main themes that you can't come away uh, from the book having not uh, thought about is uh, the law and justification, how justification relates to the law. And the law relates to justification. And uh, we see that there is a group of um, a group of of false teachers afflicting the Galatians called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers basically taught that you had to become a Jew to become a Christian, right? That you had to perform aspects of the ceremonial law uh, in order to be a good Christian, in order to be in the camp. And so um, that's one of, the, one of the main things that we'll continue bumping up against. It's, it is a, it's a polemical book. It's very personal. The Apostle Paul uh, is, is, you know, condemning the Judaizers. Meanwhile, concerned about the Galatians, and, and his, his most intense opposition, obviously, is to the false teachers, but he's also going after the Galatians because they've, they've uh, turned to this, or are, are turning to this false gospel.
and have been seduced by the false teachers. And so he goes after them very intensely. Um, and so he, uh, and so we'll see, I mean, not that the Apostle Paul isn't personal in his other letters, he's incredibly personal. In First uh, and Second Corinthians, he's pouring himself out. He's, he's, he's using every tactic he can in order to reach uh, the sheep of that particular church. So it's, um, the book is often called the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty, uh, often referred to as sort of the, the ground zero um, teaching on Christian liberty. A number of church fathers wrote commentaries on it, uh, including Chrysostom, Augustine, Jerome. They all wrote commentaries on the book. And um, so where is Galatia? If you look at the map that you handed out, it's smack dab in the middle of modern Turkey. Okay? And if you look at... I didn't, I didn't print... Um, the missionary journeys would have, should be distinguished by colors, but you can see all of Paul's movements about the first, second, third missionary journeys. And most of it is taking place in what is modern-day Turkey, right? He makes it into Greece. He um, makes it into what would probably be modern Bulgaria, and uh, he's on Cyprus, and, um, and so you see this here, but just think about modern Turkey. Um, it, is, it is constitutionally an Islamic country, okay? And, and the capital, the modern capital of Turkey is right in the Galatian region. It's Ankara. And, uh, and so you can see that there on the map as well. But down in the far corner, the left bottom corner of the Galatian region, you have Pisidian Antioch, you have Iconium, you have Derby, you have Lystra. And so uh, those, those cities should be familiar from your New Testament readings as well. And then you see um, other areas that are mentioned, for instance, by the Apostle Peter in his letters to the churches in Bithynia. And, and so this is, this is where the church went, you know, from Jerusalem and from, from Israel. It goes north into this region of Turkey and obviously over toward Greece and then beyond that uh, to, to Rome. And uh, that was the progress but uh, Chuck, any, Chuck is, is about to be deployed to this area for water mission to do some work there in uh, the um, disaster relief. And, and so he's, I imagine you've looked at a map at the very least and can give us a few points on modern Turkey. <laughs> hey, I tell you what. Check, check. There you go. Some of you may remember a few months ago, I actually talked about 
what is today modern Turkey. We did a Sunday school lesson on Constantine the Ninth and talked about the siege of Const the final siege of Constantinople in 1453. Up till 1453, what we know today as Turkey would have been would have been a seat of Christian power in uh, in West a in West Asia. At that point, it would have been the Constantinople would have been the heart of the Byzantine Empire and a meeting point uh, meeting point between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. And that geographic distinction has been a major part of Turkey's history. Uh, it's one of the earliest settled regions of the world, and that's because so much moved between the seas up the Straits of the Bosphorus. Mm -hmm. So in 1453, it was taken by the Ottoman Turks under Mehmet II and became Istanbul, uh, which remains to this day. Um, bringing it up in more into the modern era, uh, as as re the Ottoman Im the Ottoman Empire was about as long lasting as the Byzantine Empire it replaced, it entered World War One on the side of Germany and the other Central Powers, and did not come out the other side successfully. Instead, it was partitioned up. It, the remains of the Ottoman Empire were partitioned into multiple nations by the Allies. When we think of partition, we usually think of India and Pakistan after World War II, but this happened in a lot in World War I as well. And so modern Turkey was, the, was one of the countries created out of partition following World War I. The, uh, so as Andrew mentioned, Ankara is the capital, but Istanbul remains the, the largest city, uh, the financial center of the country, and still remains one of the most magnificent cities uh, in the world. And it's interesting to note, it is officially a Muslim country. You, if you are born in Turkey, you are Muslim by state decree. Doesn't mean, it doesn't mean it's all, it doesn't mean it's everyone practices it or believes it in their hearts. It's a very, very, it's one of the most liberal, liberal Muslim Islamic countries of the Middle East because, again, as in its past, there's a lot of traffic, a lot of commerce, a lot of people moving to and from. It sits right there at the point, right there, a tiny little point of meeting uh, between Europe and Asia. So in many ways it's very European, in many ways it's very Middle Eastern, in many ways it's very Asian. It's uh, ethnically diverse and always has been, so you have, you have the native Turks, you have Kurds, Arabs, Syrians. A lot of Syrian refugees have moved, have moved north into Turkey following um, ongoing civil war in Syria. Uh, there's a lot of tension because of these things. There's a, and there is a lot of spiritual warfare that goes on for the heart of the country. Obviously, Islam dominates, but it is not unopposed, and there's a lot of other faith, uh, a lot of other faith that's pursued there as well. The last thing I'll mention regarding my own work is I will um, Water Mission, the, the Christian charity that I work for, has been to Antioch. It was part of our initial assessment following the earth, the, the serious earthquakes back in February. Antioch is one of the oldest cities in the world. As Andrew mentioned, it's of biblical fame. Uh, it largely doesn't exist anymore. The earthquakes wiped out most of what was there because re heading into the southern region where it's located on the south side of the Galatian and Cappadocian region, Andrew pointed out, was the epicenter of the earthquakes that happened back in early February. Serious earthquakes followed by, um, followed by aftershocks that just wiped out or made everything structurally unsound around. So it's the, the country will be recovering from what happened for a long time. One of the things that we, we have to be aware of is while things are generally liberal, uh, liberal and European in Istanbul, Ankara, Adana, cities like that, when so you head further into the rural areas, it's much more conservative in the sense of much more consistently uh, Islamic. So, and as a result, a lot more, a lot more poverty, a lot of buildings that weren't set up to be prepared, weren't prepared for the regions that they're in. 
Um, so it's a heart. It's a place of the. It's a part of the world that is feeling its need right now. The Lord's hand has been very heavy on it throughout history, and particularly recently. So it's a place to pray for. Um, I'll be working with an interpreter there who's work, who he's in school in the north of the country, but he's been working with water missions since February. Uh, he is actually a Kurdish Christian, and it's not easy for him on either front. So pray for, as you think of it, pray for brothers and sisters in Turkey. It's a hard place to serve the Lord Jesus. They pay the price every day just to go to Sunday morning worship. That's something that we do very, uh, very easily here in the U.S. So, Thanks. So think, think about the fact that this, I mean, the modern history of the Galatian region is, is smack dab in the middle of, of uh, Islamic culture. Uh, there are Christian churches, there are Christians in the area, um, but a lot of the, you know, a lot of the cities, a lot of the ancient cities have been destroyed repeatedly by, uh, by earthquakes. This, this recent earthquake is not, certainly not the first. Antioch has been wiped out several times by huge earthquakes. And, um, and so, it, uh, I think it's more or less theoretical if you go there, the places where the Apostle Paul was, was preaching or examples of early churches, it's, you know, if, if it's authentic or not, it's hard to tell because the, the, the area has been worked over so many times in earthquakes. And, but nonetheless, the, the faith went out here and spread through this region to the rest of the world. And um, the Apostle Paul... Uh, spent spent much time in this area ministering to the churches and planting churches. So that's that's geographically where we're at. It it I mean it doesn't have much impact in our understanding of the book of Galatians, but it just puts in your mind that we're talking about a foreign area, a foreign culture, two thousand some years ago, which culturally makes makes their life and their lifestyle just so much different than our own. And, um, you know, you think of electricity and antibiotics, uh, which, you know, they did not have. <laughs> and that just, it's such, such a different uh, time and uh, to live. Uh, the difficulty of the Apostle Paul traveling along these routes I mean, I, I don't think we could um, overestimate. I mean, it, it is, uh, this would have been difficult, dangerous uh, work that a man would need to be called to to undertake, right, to keep going. And, of course, we know the things that the Apostle Paul suffered as he went on these missionary journeys. There's a long list that you can read in, um, in his writings. And so... Anyway, the, um, this book, the book of Galatians, this letter that Paul wrote to the churches of this region was hugely influential in the Protestant Reformation. I mean, this is where things got going as far as Luther was concerned. 
Luther was lecturing on Galatians a year before he posted the 95 Theses. So he's, he's chewing on this book, and he's like, man, this, the, the Roman Catholic scheme is off base. They are, they are committing the error that's condemned in this book. And so he begins um, lecturing through those, uh, this book, and that, that influences other uh, people who are sitting on the fence and moving toward uh, Reformation. Later, as he was um, a professor at the uh, University of Wittenberg, he, uh, he went through Galatians again, did an exposition of Galatians in 1531 at the university. He had three students in that class who took notes down, took down all of his lectures in shorthand. This is, how, this is why we have old sermons. People learned a, a way of, of getting everything that was said down as it said very quickly with a shorthand that then they would go back and revise. And then the person who delivered the lecture would then um, check to see if it, you know, um, if it got the gist of what he was saying. And so these three men did that and said it before Luther. And he's like, yeah, you guys got it. That's what I said. And so they published it in 1539, that commentary on Galatians that we read now was published 1539, it's the lectures were given in 1531 at the University of, of Wittenberg. So those friends were George Rohr, Veit Dietrich, and Caspar Kruziger. Uh, so we have them to thank for uh, getting us the Luther's commentary on Galatians. Luther, of course, loved this book. He said he was wedded to it, and he called it his Katie von Bora. He called it, which was the name of his beloved wife. And so he loved this book. He, he went to it. If he's, uh, Luther is famously known to have called the, the book of James an epistle of straw, but this book he called his beloved wife and said he was wedded to it. The main thrust of the book, the main question that is asked and answered is, what must I do to be saved? That's what the whole book is about. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is faith. Faith, 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 faith. We keep coming back to that. You're saved by faith and not by works, not by the elemental principles of the law. Salvation by faith alone. And so the Holy Spirit in this book, remember this is not just written by the Apostle Paul, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so this is God writing, uh, inspiring this book, using the pen and the mind of the Apostle Paul, carrying it along. And the Holy Spirit takes a stick to works righteousness. Uh, this, is, this book is a condemnation of salvation by personal merit. It just tears that open and does not allow for it. Okay. If you go back to the book of Acts... We learn that one of, the, one of the big controversies early in the book of Acts was how do we bring together Jew, 
converted Jews and Gentile and converted Gentiles. How how are they supposed to live together? And so in Acts 15, you get the Council of the Apostles, the first ecumenical council comes together and they make a decision about how how um, Jews and Gentiles can come together and have table fellowship. And nonetheless, these questions continued to plague the church. And we learn that because of this book and the effect of the Judaizers 50 in, uh, in those years. How, how, when was, I, I don't know the date that we assume the Acts 15 council came together, but it's within years of the writing of this book, right? So they're very close and they're dealing with these things. But the, that, that question is, would Gentile believers be required to keep the law of Moses, particularly its ceremonial aspects, in order to be Christians? The Judaizers said, yes, they must keep the ceremonial aspects. The Holy Spirit says, not so fast. <laughs> no. And so um, they work through that. Another big thing that is... Um, that is a part of the book of Galatians, is the apostleship of Paul. He spends large portion of the first and second chapters defending his apostleship. And, um, and so he explains, you know, where, where he came from and how he got his credentials and, you know, who examined him and all these things. And so he explains that, but the the there were questions about this guy Paul, as you might expect, in the early church, because Paul had been a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a blasphemer, a violent persecutor of the church, and then boom, he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people are like, eh, what's going on here? So he he has to defend himself. Um Again, it's very personal for the Apostle Paul here. This is one of the earliest books of the New Testament, written somewhere between 48 and 58. Maybe the best guess that people have is this was written in 52 when Paul was in Ephesus doing his work uh, to plant a church there. And so 52-ish this would, would have been written. Any questions on that? Um, any questions on that? I do want to re- try and read through this in the last 20 minutes here. Concern. Okay. All right, let's read it. Galatians. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is 
really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say unto seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. 
Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought out in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me. You who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free one. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. 
Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are, are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as, but as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, envying drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
but each one must examine his own work. And then you will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they, may, they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Amen. Well, we're out of time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this inspired word. Thank you for the way that it glorifies your son, amplifies his work. And Father, we are tremendously blessed that we are saved by faith. Thank you for the gift of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.